You're listening to the Plain Bible Teaching Podcast, where we discuss current events, social issues, religious trends, and noteworthy news from a biblical perspective. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to the newest episode of the Plain Bible Teaching Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Soker. This episode is being released on January 19th, 2023. And joining me again this week is my good friend, Christopher Gardana. Christopher, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's a good beginning of the year here. Definitely is. This week, what we're going to be talking about is the death of Pope Benedict XVI. The former Pope passed away on December 31st, the last day of last year. He resigned in 2013 as the first Pope to do that since the early 15th century. Now, of course, many people are, because this just happened, many people are talking about it and using this time to remember his life, the contributions that he made to the Catholic Church and to the world in general. But what we want to do today is talk about not only Pope Benedict XVI himself, but really the whole concept of the Pope and what the Bible has to say about that. So for links to the story we're talking about, as well as other related materials, you can check out the show notes for this episode at plainbibleteaching.com slash podcast slash 0119. 23. So now for our story this week. Pope Benedict XVI, the first pope to resign in 600 years, dies at age 95. From the Associated Press, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, the shy German theologian who tried to reawaken Christianity in a secularized Europe, but will forever be remembered as the first pontiff in 600 years to resign from the job, died Saturday. He was 95. Benedict stunned the world on February 11, 2013, when he announced in his typical soft-spoken Latin that he no longer had the strength to run the 1.2 billion strong Catholic Church that he had steered for eight years through scandal and indifference. His dramatic decision paved the way for the conclave that elected Pope Francis as his successor. The two popes then lived side by side in the Vatican Gardens, an unprecedented arrangement that set the stage for future popes emeritus to do the same. And now Francis will celebrate Benedict's funeral mass, the first time in the modern age that a current pope will eulogize a retired one. As tributes poured in from the political and religious leaders around the world, Francis himself praised Benedict's kindness and thanked him for his testimony of faith and prayer, especially in these final years of retired life. Speaking during a New Year's Eve vigil, Francis said only God knew of his sacrifices offered for the good of the church. So there has been a lot said about, about different people about this event and the passing of this man. But Christopher, I'll let you start us off here. What are some things that we need to consider when we think about not just this individual, Pope Benedict XVI, but about the office of the Pope? What are some things that... that to start us off, what do we need to remember about this? Well, if anybody's been listening to your podcast up to this point, then they recognize this is plain Bible teaching, and it's a, it's going to be Bible-based. And I just want to emphasize that anything I say is not going to be out of a meanness or, you know, out of my effort or my desire to insult anyone's faith. And in this case, as the AP reported, $1.2 billion. So I'm not trying to offend those folks, but I would encourage all of us to examine the scriptures. And uh, I understand that, you know, even that statement right there, they're going to say, well, what about this or what about that? But um, in Galatians chapter one, 
the Apostle Paul warned in verses 6 through 10, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And verse 8 is really the key. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And then he goes on to repeat that in verse 9. Uh, and then he points out his reasoning again in verse 10. He says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So he's he's indicating here the reasons why some might be swayed to push something which is not scriptural because they're trying to please men. And that's what you see with a lot of the traditions, uh, even admittedly, some of the traditions which are regional only. You know, uh, we could go into all kinds of other tangents, but suffice to say, Paul even warned that even if we as the Apostle Paul or an angel preached to you a gospel that is contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. So right there is a good indicator. And then when you look at Jude, where it says to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, um, you know, that faith has been revealed in the word of God. Now, so you ask the question, what does the Bible say about popes? Well, simply, it's it's like so many subjects that we might address. They're, they're, the word doesn't even exist in the New Testament. Now, obviously, the Pope means father or, you know, uh, or Papa or, you know, there's different variations in the in the other languages. But the claim of the Catholic Church is that it is a, a line of succession from the Apostle Peter as the first Pope. And yet there's no biblical connection to this tradition. And I would encourage people to consider uh, there's an article and I know you're going to put it in the show notes. Uh, was Peter the first Pope? Uh, it's from apologeticspress.org. And, you know, some of the points that are made there, and of course, there are other, other outlines that I've seen where they've got like 26 different verses that really do point out how Peter could not have been the, quote, first pope, uh, certainly not at all compared to what you see in the Catholic Church. But, you know, one of the examples they mentioned is in Acts chapter 10 and verse 26, where uh, Cornelius, after being told to seek him, and after Peter recognizes that the gospel is uh, open and available to non-Jews, you know, Gentiles. Uh, he, he He's there to talk to Cornelius, and Cornelius starts to get down and bow down to him, and he says, stand up, I too am just a man in Acts chapter 10 and verse 26. So a pope today would not necessarily, or, you know, the last, how many was it that we said 200? We didn't say. I think there's been 266 popes. Yeah, something like that. It's It's yeah. been... It's been around that number, yeah. And I don't know that any of them would have said, no, 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 do not, do not worship me. I, too, am just a man. They would say, no, I'm I'm the head of the church, the Catholic universal church on earth. Uh, also in Luke chapter 22, where uh, which really much of the hierarchy that you see within the Catholic church and all the different names of all the different pontiffs and all the different people that are, are there, uh, it's all about who is above who and who has rank over who and who finally gets to decide. And of course, the Pope, he's he's the top, right? But in Luke chapter 22, they were discussing who was the best or who was the greatest. And Jesus said, you know, you all shouldn't be acting like the Gentiles. It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 25 and 26, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. But as he goes on to say, but not so among you. The idea is, 
you know, none of you should be like vying for head guy or head apostle or any of those kinds of things. That that's not the way this is supposed to be. And that's just another argument. Um, now, I put in my notes here that there's also the argument that's made in Matthew chapter, I believe it's in chapter 16 and verse 18, where they, where Jesus asks, you know, who do people say that I am, right? And doesn't Peter there uh, give the good confession? And he says, you are the Christ, the the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And in verse 18, it says, and I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. And so a lot of times I'll say, aha, there it is. It says it right there. Um, I'm going to give you, he says, I'm going to, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall, you know, and they go on to repeat maybe the King James version, but I do appreciate the new American standard, uh, which is a literal translation, a word-for-word -word translation. And it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So uh, opposed to this concept that, you know, heaven is just going to go with whatever the, the first Pope Peter says. And so whether it contradicted something that came before, because you can't, you can't contradict yourself, you're always infallible. And that was only since like the 1870s that that was considered the Pope was infallible. Go look it up. <laughs> but, you know, this is their, the verse that says that, but that's not actually what he's saying here. He's saying you're going to be binding what is already bound in heaven. And and what did you see there on the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? They were there preaching the gospel, uh, the tongues of fire on their, you know, anointing them. And then they're there preaching and teaching in tongues that they had never studied or learned. And they're, everyone is able to hear the gospel, they they certainly had the keys of the kingdom and they were spreading the gospel. So, you know, again, he did not have any extra high authority over any of the other apostles. They were all there to to open the doors of the kingdom to the lost. So that that's really um, my second point. The first one being that even Paul said, if we are angels, preach to you something different than we're accursed. Uh, there's plenty of scriptural references that that show that Peter was not the first pope. That that is a false argument. And then finally, um, when when the news of Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth passed, I thought of Hebrews chapter seven. And so I I'd encourage you to turn over there, where the author, the Hebrew writer, is trying to make this point that you don't need to go back to Judaism because everything in Christ is much better. In fact, that's the whole book of Hebrews is talking about the supremacy and how much better Christ is and the new covenant. And if the old one had been good enough, then we wouldn't need a new one and so on and so forth. But I find it really interesting in verse 23 of chapter seven, where it says the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. And I thought about this Pope, he was the 265th Pope. And why was that? Well, because they just keep dying. And that's what the Hebrew writer was pointing out here. The reason that the old law and under Judaism, uh, you know, they just kept dying. And so that's why there were a greater number of them. But he says, but Jesus, verse 24, on the other hand, he continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. And I also emphasize in verse 25, it says he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, so again, the supremacy of Christ, the, the Hebrew writer is trying to say, don't go back to the traditions in Judaism. You need to recognize that those things could not accomplish what can be and has been accomplished in Christ. He is he is showing the superiority of Christ in his church, 
and contrasting those old temple practices and worship as being inferior, which they were. They were never meant to do what Christ was coming to do. And yet at no point does the writer of Hebrews attempt to convince the readers that you need to, to you know, fall away from Judaism, but you need to accept the papal system of the Roman Catholic Church. You know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, supplant one priesthood, uh, earthly, you know, filled by men, finite, frail men, and we're going to fill it with another group of men, which are just as finite and frail, right? But on Jesus, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. It's one another part of that same passage says there. So he, it's his permanently. It's not going to be given to anyone else. And so unlike the system built on frail, finite men, Jesus stands forever. And I just think that's the, how amazing it is. And, you know, why would we trade one frail system built on frail priests under Judaism to the same kind of deal under Catholicism? And we just don't see that pattern in the New, in the New Testament. There are no, and, and I guess one other thing is there are no two heads of the church. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, it says that he put all things into subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yeah, one head to the church, and that is Christ. It's not Peter, it's not you know, Pope Francis or Pope Benedict or anything or anyone like that. One thing that I thought of as you were as you were talking about that and making the point about Jesus holding his priesthood permanently. And he's not, you know, he may have died, but he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. His death was not preventing him from holding that position, and it's never going to prevent him from holding that position. But you have this pope who just passed away, or this former pope who just passed away, the one who is the current pope at some point is going to pass away. Peter, obviously, he was, you know, he passed away long ago, but it reminded me of the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it's not Peter, but it's Paul, who's another one of the, one of the apostles, but he knew that he was not going to be around forever, and so he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul said, Timothy, I'm teaching you. You're going to take what I teach you. You're going to teach that to others. Well, what was he going to be teaching? Well, a few verses earlier in chapter 1 and verse 13, he said, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So what Paul taught that was what Timothy was to teach. And the ones that Timothy taught, they were to teach the same thing. It goes back to the point that you made from Galatians 1, that you know, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, then they're to be accursed. It doesn't matter if it's Paul or Peter or anyone else. If anyone teaches something that's different, yeah, or an angel, anyone, anyone teaches something different, then we're not to follow them because we've been given the perfect and complete revelation from Christ, who is still the head of the church. One thing that uh, that I thought of in in this, and this kind of gets a little bit past the the idea of just the Pope, but he's kind of part of this idea of the organization of the church. And you have the Catholic Church more than anything. You have this large hierarchy where you have him as head over this entire global church. Well, you look at the New Testament. And again, you compare what that is with what we see in the New Testament, it's very different. And there are a lot of religious groups that they're not 
Catholic, there are a lot of Protestant groups or things like that that say, well, no, we don't have a pope. We don't have something like that with all of this huge structure. But they do have some type of organization that is larger than the local church. When we read the New Testament, we see God's design for the church is that it is to be autonomous. One passage that that is helpful to remember is over in 1 Peter chapter 5, where you have Peter, again, he is the one who is allegedly the first pope, but again, and we'll link to that article that you mentioned that explains why he could not have been the first pope, but one of the passages that shows that he wasn't is here in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he described himself in verse 1 as a fellow elder in writing to the elders there, and he described himself as a fellow elder. The elders were to shepherd the flock, and they were exercising authority under the chief shepherd, verse 4, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is Christ, because he holds his position permanently. So those mm-hmm. elders in the church, they were under Christ. They were not under some regional bishop where he was going to be over them, and there was going to be a higher authority over over him, and eventually leading up to the universal bishop or the pope. That sure. That's not what Peter's describing here. But he says there in verse 2, to these elders who were accountable to Christ, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving in it, proving to be examples to the flock. So here, the scope of the of the role or the work of the elders was over the flock that is among them, that they were mm-hmm. elders who were overseeing a local church. And there sure. is no other structure or no other organization that is larger than that in the New Testament. So one of the things that I think it's it's helpful for us to remember when we see something like this, and there are a lot of people in the religious world who see the the problems and the and the abuses and all of the all of the things that have happened in the Catholic Church, and a lot of that is because anytime you have a big hierarchy and bureaucracy, there's going to be problems that come with that. And they think, well, we don't have that. But there are so many people who are part of churches that they may not have a universal pope or the same structure as the Catholic Church, but they are still, they do still have some structure. They still have some organization that's bigger than the local church. So I think this is this is an important reminder it you know when we think about times like this where we're focusing on the Catholic Church, well, it's not just because it's the biggest denomination or the biggest organization out there. It's because you know you have a the reason why it's it's you know we're saying it's contrary to the scriptures is simply because it is an organization bigger than the local church. And we need to be part of a church, a local church that is following the pattern that we find in the scriptures and is not tied to some other church, some other organization, or some larger umbrella of of churches or some governing body that's over certain churches. But we are in a congregation where there are elders who are overseeing that flock, assuming there are men qualified, as 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about. But beyond that, those elders, they are under Christ. And there's no other organization, there's no other structure beyond that. So do you have any anything to add to that, to that point there? 
Uh, well, you just really described there uh, how the church is supposed to be an independent organization, autonomous, and you see that from the examples like, for instance, in uh, Acts chapter uh, 14 and verse 23, where they were appointing elders, and it says there, just like you said, uh, to shepherd the flock among you, this says in, in Acts 14, 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then the other verse that I had uh, mentioned was in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, which is, you know, the beginning salutation. It just says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, which would be your elders and deacons. Mm -hmm. So again, describing all three different groups of members there, just the saints in general, which which are not saints because they, of some miraculous event that they're voted in later. Saints were Christians in the first century. Mm -hmm. And so to the Christians at Philippi, including the elders and the deacons, so you see there again that that designation within the church at Philippi, right? And and we think about that organization that that follows God's design for the local church. In First Timothy three fifteen it talks about how the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Mm -hmm. And we think about well, what church is that? You know, obviously there are principles you know in that statement that apply to the universal church, but in that context, First Timothy three, he's been talking about elders in the church and deacons in the church, and they're obviously working within the local church. Mm -hmm. So when God arranged the local church and designed it according to his plan, it is able to be the pillar and support of the truth. So a lot of people will, will say that, well, you know, just one church, you know, one church can't do very much. No, a congregation that's independent or autonomous, that's self-governing, is able to do everything that the Lord wants it to do. That we don't need, we're not dependent on some other church, some other organization. We don't need to look to a pope or some governing body to figure out what we're going to do. We have everything we need when we follow God's design that is found in his word. We have everything we need to be the pillar and support of the truth and do the work that, that the Lord's called us to do. You know, uh, I was thinking you were asking the question uh, in some of the notes we were going over, you know, what are some of the benefits of that autonomy? Well, I think of the book of Revelation with the seven churches, and you see how there, you know, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, uh, they each had their own problems. And, and through the Spirit, uh, he was trying to, you know, Jesus was trying to help them with those problems. Uh, and there were at least a couple there, uh, whether I think it's Smyrna in my notes here in Philadelphia, that there was absolutely no criticism. So, you know, they were not being affected by the same problems that were happening in the other places. And so we're not picking on the Catholic Church to say that they're full of, you know, there's all kinds of scandals or whatever. You know, in the first century, there were first, there were scandals. You know, uh, that's one of the problems that was being dealt with there in, in First Corinthians. You know, Paul was dealing with someone who was with his father's wife, you know, rebuking him, you know, leavening the, the church. You know, the scandal has been, as long as there are humans in the church, there's going to be sin and there's going to be stuff that has to be dealt with. But you do see how with that autonomy, you know, each church had its own issues, but there were some things they were doing right. And there were other things they could be doing better. There were some things they needed to give up immediately. Uh, you know, Sardis is one that was a church in name only. You know, mm -hmm. you know, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead, you know, strengthen what little remains, you know. And, and there again, 
if if it had been the hierarchy that you see in so many different denominations today, you you do see why so many uh, sins are being, you know, permeating even the local congregations because they're being told from on high, you know, the council says we're now okay with this type of marriage or this type of lifestyle or this type of, you know, you fill in the blank. Right. And that's why it's nice to have that autonomy where we're not beholden for funds or to maintain the the property. You know, I, I believe there's some some churches where the, the property is owned by like I think the Catholic Church might be one where, you know, if they decided they don't like what's going on there, they can just say, well, that's our property. You know, we're you, you need to get off the property and you no longer have a place to worship where we're all independent and we're not beholden to another congregation in Florida or Georgia or some other convention. Right. Yeah. Those and that practical things. You know? Right. And that, that idea, and we see that not just with the Catholic church, but you know, the United Methodist church has been going through this with, you know, this split that they're going through where you have in order to try to make as many people happy, they have to compromise. And, and again, we're not just picking on the Catholics or the Methodists or, or anything like that, but just as, just to illustrate this point that whenever you have, all of these groups coming together, all these different churches, all these different interests coming together, in order to keep them together, there has to be a degree of compromise. And so much of that has been on their own principles. And that's why they've been changing on different things. As you mentioned marriage and things like that, that as our society drifts away from what the Bible teaches, churches are tempted to drift away from that. And you mentioned that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, where it talked about you know the church there had the had the man who who had his father's wife and talked about the leaven that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough well mm -hmm. that was going to affect that congregation but if the church at Corinth was tied to or was was part of the same global congregation as the church at Philippi or the church in Berea or the church at Sancria or wherever it might be they're all tied together and Corinth is going to accept this person well all of the other churches, they're going to be tempted, well, if we don't want to cause a rift between us and Corinth, well, we're going to have to be okay with that too. And when you have churches that are not autonomous, then it opens the door to that leaven that is spreading through that one church to just go and spread through these other churches. So that's definitely a danger that that's there. And it wasn't just something that was just kind of happening in the background. In verse two, it says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. So they couldn't even claim ignorance. He's saying, y'all were being arrogant about it. You were boasting in your fellowship with this person who is living in open sin. It's such an immorality that does not even exist among the Gentiles. That seems hard to believe, you know, Yeah. considering the first century. And yet that's what Paul says. He says, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, and you're arrogant about it. Well, they they were boasting in their tolerance. Look how tolerant we are. Yeah, you can imagine then if they were like, say, the head church over a few others in that area, that they would say, no, you are going to fellowship this family. You are going to fellowship this relationship. You are going to sanction it. In fact, we expect you to promote it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that sound like anything today? Hmm. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Too 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 often we see that that there there are these compromises that happen, and when you have to try to keep that organization together, then 
there's a there's that temptation there because we we, get, we gain a sense of pride in yeah. in the structures, the organizations that we build, that man builds. There's a sense of of pride there. Sure. That well, look at what we have. Look at how strong we are. That that article that we that we read talked about the 1.2 billion, you know, member Catholic Church. Look how big this organization is. We don't want to do anything wrong. that breaks that up. It can't be wrong. I mean, there's so many. Right. And, you know, and might makes right, majority rules or whatever we want want to say. But we know that God's word is true. Christ is still the head of the church, and he designed it where we're going to worship together. We're going to work together in local congregations. And in that congregation, it doesn't matter what the church down the road is doing. It doesn't matter what the church, you know, halfway around the world is doing. We are responsible to be faithful to the Lord. So mm-hmm. as we think about this story and the death of this man, that obviously his death is a tragedy and we're we're not you know happy that that he has passed. However, at the same time, it's important to remember some lessons from his life and and the whole organization and the whole idea behind how someone could even come to be a pope. We need to remember what the Lord's plan was for his church. Recognize what his will is in that, that Christ is the head of the church, that he holds a position permanently, that he's not going to be prevented by death from continuing. The passage that Christopher pointed out that, like the priests were, Christ is permanently in his position. And his design has local churches being overseen by elders, that they are, these churches are autonomous, and any hierarchy beyond that has originated in the mind of man. It did not come from Christ. So before we close today, Christopher, do you have any other comments that you want to make? I just remind you of Galatians where he says, am I seeking the favor of man or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Our goal should be to be a bondservant of Christ and not be beholden to the traditions of men. And that's a good way to put it. It's a good way to end it. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to the Plain Bible Teaching Podcast. I hope you found this to be interesting and informative and helpful. For links to the story we talked about, as well as some other related materials, some that we've mentioned in the episode and the other ones will be included as well, you can visit the show notes for this episode at plainbibleteaching.com slash podcast slash 019.23. If you have a moment to rate and review the podcast and share it with others, that would be appreciated. And if you are listening to this, remember that we are also uploading video versions of the podcast to the Plain Bible Teaching YouTube channel. So if you prefer video to audio, then that option is available. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe to the channel so you can see other materials or other videos as they are put out. And if you see a new story that you think would make for a good discussion, please send that to me at andy at plainbibleteaching.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Plain Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Also, be sure to sign up for the Plain Bible Teaching Weekly Newsletter. This free newsletter will be delivered to your inbox each Friday with articles, podcasts, videos, sermon outlines, and more. Visit plainbibleteaching.com to subscribe today.